All right. As I mentioned last week, we are starting the book of Genesis. Last week I did, instead of diving into Genesis, we just did kind of an overview of the entire Bible. So that was pretty fun. Uh, enjoy, I hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed putting that together and, and teaching that. Uh, this week, we're really not diving quite into Genesis yet either. So you may be disappointed by that, but I've got one more kind of introductory message that I want to do before we really start to kind of start with Genesis 1, verse 1. And um, so uh, the, the title of the message, as may suggest that, you know, <laughs> we're going to talk about dinosaurs this morning, but, um, but just briefly, uh, but what I realize is with Genesis, it's one of those books, it's the uh, kind of the most uh, challenging for interpretation purposes and, and understanding what's going on, uh, specifically zeroed in on those first 11 chapters of Genesis. So it's one of the most difficult, probably in the entire uh, Bible, right? All of the, the books of the Bible, this one is uh, right up there is uh, one of the top books of just trying to figure out, okay, what is going on in the story or what is happening? Uh, it, the reality comes from this, uh, first of all, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis likely covers thousands of prehistoric events and just 11 chapters. And uh, so we have this reality that in 11 chapters, can you cover all of that prehistoric, you know, those, you know, what's going on, right? There's so much that we are missing. You know, we get some things revealed, but so much of it, we just don't know. And uh, I mean, it seems like uh, the Genesis is, will give us a couple of different events and, and some events it'll go into pretty good detail on and kind of describe that. Uh, other events, it'll just give us a little tiny snippet. And we're like, okay, what do we do with that? And then other things, of course, they're just totally silent on. And, you know, maybe, you know, we just have kind of really no idea. And so if this indeed, if this 11 chapters is actually covering, you know, thousands of years of time and of human history, then you would expect that maybe there's some confusion here, not really fully understanding what's going on. It really leaves us with a lot of questions, and some of which I'm hoping to highlight this morning in this message to kind of dive into some of these questions. Some of the questions of these ones I won't highlight this morning, uh, but did serpents have legs when they were first created, right? I mean, that's a question that comes up in Genesis 3, right? Like, what's going on there? You know, God made him, now he's got to crawl. So what's going on, right? So uh, we're not going to cover that today, sorry. So I don't know if we'll ever cover that. It's just one of those questions. Uh, next, who did Cain marry? Right? So Cain kills Abel, and then he gets kicked out, and he goes wandering around. And then he marries someone, right? I mean, like Cain is supposedly like the second, you know, you know fourth person on, you know, the, on, on the earth, right? And so who's he marrying? A sister? And, and where did these cities come from that he walked, you know? And, I don't know. There's this, I don't know. This is the question we're not going to answer today. Sorry. Uh, how, did, how did Abel and Cain know that they're even supposed to sacrifice? Right? I mean, the, the sacrificial you know, system isn't given until Moses, like a long time later. And yet they're giving the sacrifice, and one of them gives a good sacrifice, one gives the, oh, a bad sacrifice. Wait a second. Who, what, I don't, what happened there? We, we don't understand. I'm not going to answer. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, one of those things. Uh, what about this guy named Enoch? Right? He walked with God, and then he wasn't. Like God came and took him is what the Bible says, right? I mean, so what is going on there? I mean, God, can you come take me? 
I mean, maybe he will. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, so we don't know what's going on in there. And of course, the big question is, you know, did they prepare their coffee with a French press or was it just a pour over? Right? I mean, think about it. That's a big question. We need to know. We need to understand. Uh, anyway, so these are, you know, just there's tons of questions that come up when you read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and it doesn't seem to give you answers. Now, we're going to cover some other ones here in a minute, uh, and, and we'll, we'll see. And, and I'm not going to give you answers, by the way. We're just going to talk about them because I don't know if that answers can be given. Uh, in the prepa- preparation for this message uh, specifically, but also it's going to be helping with other messages in the future as well, I just wanted to give you some resources because these do have questions attached to them. And so maybe as we go through them, you're going, I want to know more, right? I want to study or research a little bit more. So I'm just going to give you some resources that maybe you could, you know, dive into and check out. Uh, uh, One is uh, the book called Genesis in Space and Time by Francis Schaeffer. He's nobody big deal, but he just, yeah, um, he wrote a couple of books. Um, uh, Also the book Genesis, which is a commentary by John C. L. Gibson. Uh, Opening up Genesis, another commentary by Kurt Strassner. And then a couple of websites that I found pretty helpful. WorldEventsAndTheBible.com worldeventsandthebible.com and christianity.com. Both had some helpful kind of just resources just to be able to answer some of these questions, or at least kind of give you some idea of what's going on and do some extra research in that. Uh, What I have found is that with Genesis, like many books of the Bible, matter of fact, every book of the Bible, what is of most importance when we come to a book of the Bible is to understand the occasion for writing. You see, why did the author sit down and write this stuff out? What was the purpose? If we understand that about a book, it really helps us a lot in interpreting what the book has to say and understanding what the book has to say. Now, Genesis is kind of an interesting book in this sense because Moses is the traditionally thought person who writes the book of Genesis. However, there's this sense as well that like God is kind of writing this. A a lot of the first 11 chapters, uh, just kind of this different kind of feel to it. And so understanding why Genesis is given to us really helps us in understanding the stories that are given or the stories are even left out or what those stories mean. Uh, So a couple of things that Genesis is not doing, so it's not concerned with. These are the things that is not why God decided to write this book or Moses decided to write this book. First, Genesis Genesis is not given, uh, is not here to give us a scientific explanation of how creation happened. It's not the purpose of Genesis. It's also not the purpose of Genesis to give us a detailed chronology of creation. Okay? So uh, I think a lot of the struggles that we have with the first 11 chapters, especially of Genesis, is that we impose certain perspectives or certain purposes of Genesis onto the text that aren't there. If you come to Genesis with a mind that this is telling us scientifically how creation happened, then you're going to misinterpret what it's saying. Because that's not the purpose. But you'll expect, and so you'll begin to interpret certain aspects, certain terminology, certain words that are used, and you begin to understand those in a scientific way, 
instead of why God gave us this book. And so why did he give us the book? I think the key here is to understand that the book of Genesis is given to us, as I kind of mentioned last week, as roots. Roots to our heritage. They answer the key, uh, they, they, they are concerned with answering the key existential questions of humanity that all human beings ask and need to know. Existential questions like, where did we come from? What is our purpose? Are we valuable? And if we are, why? Is there right and wrong? And if there is right and wrong, how do we know what right and wrong is? What is the problem in humanity, right? We all know there's a problem and it always has been there. So how do we fix that problem? These are the existential questions. These are the roots, of you will, of where we're from that God is seeking to reveal to us. In essence, if you were to boil it down, I believe Genesis is about revealing who God is and who we are. Misinterpretation happens similarly to if you were to watch the highlights of a sporting event. So sometimes on TV, right, you go to ESPN and there's a game that you miss, but you want to catch the highlights. In the highlight reel, what they do is they go through the game chronologically in a sense. They start at the beginning and they end with the end, and they kind of build this tension and excitement of what's going on, so you kind of maybe don't even know what's going to happen at the end. Maybe you already know the score, but it doesn't matter. But they just give you little snippets of the big things, the key things that are going on and happened in that game, so that you can kind of get a flow of how that game went and what happened and some of the tension. Like, you know, oh, you know, Seahawks were ahead for a while and then they got behind and then it looked like they were going to lose. But then at the last minute they came back and they lost, right? And so uh, you get all this excitement, right, of going. And, and this is how we need to approach, I think, Genesis. As like this is a highlight reel of the beginning of things. And that God is not concerned in getting us all of the details. He just wants to point out the key pieces that we need to know so that as, you know, answer these existential questions so we know who God is and who we are. If we approach Genesis from this perspective, it will help to kind of not necessarily answer all of the questions, but at least put all of the questions in the right context. And will help us, I think, to make uh, for, keep help to keep us from making mistakes in our interpretation. So I have six different topics that I want to kind of jump into. Some are, most of them are directly from Scripture. A couple are kind of like, uh, you know, how does Genesis fit with the world? And the first one that I want to come uh, cover is that kind of how does Genesis you know fit into the world, and specifically the Sumerian texts. Now, I don't know if how familiar you are with archaeology and the Sumerian texts and this kind of stuff. I don't want to get into all the details. I don't have time to do that. But if you are aware of it, I just want to kind of, uh, kind of talk about this briefly. The Sumerian texts basically are book, historical books in a sense. They're not books, but they're you know, clay tablets, this kind of thing, that actually are dated to be written before Genesis was written. We think the best we can tell that Genesis was written around the 15th century B.C. 
The Sumerian texts date back to the 20th century BC. And so we get this interesting happening with, first of all, there's tons of similarities between these two texts, Genesis and the first 11 chapters and some of the Sumerian history and stuff that's going on in there, talking about the flood, talking about creation, talking about, you know, seven-day creation, this kind of stuff. And they're in both of these texts. And so it creates this little tension point, right, of, okay, so... Did the Bible, is the Bible, is Genesis just like a copy of the Sumerian text? We, we just kind of, you know, they don't match up perfectly, but did Moses just, he knew about the Sumerian, Sumerian text, and so he just kind of made up his own thing and tweaked some of the history, or is the Bible separate on his own? Uh, so let me uh, give you a little bit of background on, on Genesis really quick and from a scholarly perspective. Uh, after Adam and Eve, they begin to have kids, right? So Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel, and then they have another son named Seth. So from that time, from Adam and Eve, there is a diversion in the genealogy. There's a division that happens. And Cain is the line of those who have rejected God and are sinful. So this kind of uh, uh, humanistic, if you will, line of, of genealogy that goes through the line of Cain. Seth, however, is the line that continues all the way through to Abraham to Noah, first of all, then Abraham, and then, of course, the Israelites, to Jesus, and then we, of course, are a part of that lineage as well when we give our life to Christ as well. So, uh, so there's these two lines that happen, and it, it seems to me and seems to scholars that it's almost like the, you know, the Sumerian texts are almost just like humanistic record of history through the line of Cain, and then you have this other text, which is Genesis, which seems to be this history through the line of Seth. And so, uh, and so the questions that remain with this is, okay, which one is more accurate? Which one is true? Are they different enough? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, typically, the world scholars, those who are non-Christian, will say that because Sumerian text was written before the Genesis text, that means the Genesis text is just a ripoff of the Sumerian text. So older means more accurate and more true. You know, younger means that they've, they've adjusted things. But this doesn't have to be the case. Uh, there is an assumption that Genesis is copied and changed from the Sumerian text. But we see in Genesis that it actually is more detail in the Genesis text, and the dates are more accurate in the Genesis text than the Sumerian text. And so the question that has to be asked is, okay, which one came from which? Or, this is another possibility, are they just totally separate texts that started with the same event of creation, tracked time, but again, from the Sumerian or Cain perspective versus a, uh, a Seth perspective or the de deistic view. And so anyway, so this, this is a challenging piece. There's, uh, there's a lot out there that you can read on this. Uh, I will say that if you're, if you're reading non-Christian perspectives, they are going to kind of look at Genesis as a lesser text. This is just kind of how they're going to approach it. But if you also look at it from, uh, get some Christian scholars in it, you'll see the other side of it. But here's the deal. So like, okay, what's the, what's the, what's the answer, right? What's the solution? What, uh, you know, what is it? You know, was it Genesis or was it the Sumerian text? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> okay, uh, and, and we really are, it's just, it's so far back, we, we, we don't know for sure how this is working, but I want to leave you with this, what is the big question? 
Is the big question whether or not Genesis is from God or not? Right? Or is the big question more, is God able to communicate through pagan cultures? Can, can God communicate himself and give truths even to other cultures and what they've come down with? It's, it's amazing the number of cultures that have different views of the flood. But they all have similarities. So which one is the right one? Which one is the perfect one, right? Which is the one that is actually true, right? The question is not so much about which one is actually true. The question is, can God actually use all of them to communicate truth in some way, pieces, portions of it? So, I know, not satisfying. You're like, I come on, pastor, I want to know for sure. I do believe that the Genesis text is accurate and, uh, and it is God-ordained and God-inspired but I don't think it's, you know, I think we can use the Sumerian text maybe to, you know, not, you know, well, let's open up ourselves to look at that. Maybe God is communicating other things through that text that we should look into as well and understand. Not saying that it's accurate. There's a lot of crazy stuff in that stuff that is totally against Genesis. We need to stick strong to Genesis when we can. All right. So how's that for a start? I know some of you are like already glazed over. Okay, this is not really fun. So maybe something a little bit more exciting. Uh, old earth or young earth? All right. So uh, is, the, is creation, like, is it 6,000 years old, as some would say? Or is it millions or billions of years old, is the earth that, long, that old? We have uh, many in the Christian church today that hold to a young earth perspective, which basically means when they look at creation, that first chapter of uh, Genesis, they say these are actual 24-hour periods of time. Okay? So uh, you'll find this in Genesis 1. 1 through Genesis 2, 3. And so it actually 24 hours. So at, at the end of each day, it says that's a 24-hour period of time. And so the earth is, again, from that, if you, if you line up the chronology, you find 6,000 years old is all that the earth is. Adam and Eve, they believed, lived with the dinosaurs. So there were dinosaurs on the earth when Adam and Eve were on the earth. And, uh, and so that is their understanding of the dinosaurs and when they were. Job 40 and, for, and chapters 40 and 41 actually talk about dinosaurs. That's right. So, well, I don't know. We Maybe dinosaurs. Could have been. So, uh, yeah, God is talking, you know, responding to Job in this story, if you don't know. And he talks about, he's kind of bragging a little bit, actually, God is. Hey, do you know the behemoth? Yeah, can you tame him? Can you hold him down? Or the Leviathan? Do you know how to hand, handle that guy? Can you put a leash around him? No. So, anyway, so God is, you know, talking about these Creatures that we have no understanding of what they are today, but perhaps we're talking about dinosaurs. So dinosaurs certainly seem to have been on the earth. No one seems to deny that because of the fossil records we have. The question only is, when did those dinosaurs exist? Uh, now, the problem, there's a couple problems with young earth uh, perspective. Uh, the first and maybe primary problem that I see with it and others have seen with it, uh, and, and that doesn't mean that I don't necessarily believe it can't be true, but these are, you know, these are, this doesn't defeat the uh, 24-hour perspective at all. Uh, but the, the issue is that they say that, again, the days of creation are 24 hours, yet when you get to day seven and God rests, God's rest has not ended. And so there's a sense that, okay, if day seven is like symbolic, right, it's not a 24-hour period of time, then why are we taking the rest of the six days of creation as 24-hour periods of time? Another concern, of course, with uh, 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 young earthers is the archaeology and the science. 
that suggests that we have an older earth, right? And, and, uh, and so with that, of course, they, you know, God can, can God create an old earth? Yes, he could create an old earth with bones in the ground or whatever. I don't know however he would do that, but he could do that, certainly. But uh, having that archaeology and science does suggest that the earth is much older than 6,000 years. On the old earth side, they would say that 24 hours is more symbolic. It's not literal. And so the earth is likely millions of years old. But they don't often give like, a, you know, they don't say it's a thousand years. Each day is a thousand years. They don't, they don't try to, you know, make it into a certain uh, time frame. They just say it's just symbolic. It's, it's a day. It's how long it took for this uh, part of creation to happen. Uh, and so they believe they would, in regards to the dinosaurs, they would believe that they were long extinct before Adam and Eve came on the earth. Because again, if the earth has been uh, around for millions of years, then uh, there would be time for the dinosaurs to have been and then who have been extinct and, that, and then Adam and Eve to come on the scene. Now, of course, there's a couple of, trouble with, couple of troubles with this as well. First of all, uh, and the young earthers will really push on this and this can be an issue depending on how your perspective is, but the fact that if the earth is older like that, then that means that, and especially with the extinction of dinosaurs, that there would be death that was happening on creation before sin. And it's typically and traditionally perspective is that, you know, it was sin that brought death into creation. And so how you view that, you know, and what do we do with all that? Anyway, so there's, that's a, that's a challenge for old earth perspective. Uh, also, there's this uh, a, a tendency in old earth to embrace, and this is a criticism, to embrace evolution as a result. So evolution, there's room for evolution to happen now, and so you have some uh, of this in the, in the new mindset here of an old earth that would also embrace evolution as part of how God created. The key, the key question, or not the key question, the key word in determining old earth or young earth, I think, has to do with day. How do we interpret, how do we understand what the word day means? And so uh, that is the difference. Some, uh, again, young earth will interpret day as 24-hour period of time. Old earth would say day is symbolic. It's not 24-hour period of time. It's more like the day of the Lord, right, which is not a specific 24-hour day, but it's a a long, you know, era, if you will. And so uh, depending on how you interpret that word day is going to be how you're probably going to interpret how long, you know, how old the earth is. So I have no conclusions for you. I can't tell you that it is exactly 24 hours or it is way more than that. I can't say that because I don't know. So the big question that we have to be asking instead of being, now again, I don't mind uh, having the conversation. Hey, what was it? Was it a 24-hour period or was it longer? I love those kind of conversations and talking about the possibilities and what that looks like and how we do it. But we can't get lost in that, in any of these. We can't allow that to consume us and overwhelm us and depending on what your interpretation is, potentially destroy your faith over it. Because again, that is not the purpose of Genesis, to reveal to us exactly whether it's 24 hours or an era. Okay? The big question that we have to ask and be concerned with, and that the Bible is concerned with, Genesis is concerned with, is what did God create and why did he create it? And so if we can hang on to that question in Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2, then we can you know, maybe avoid the concern that we have over 24 hours or not. Make sense? 
Moving next, uh, more of kind of, again, stepping away from the Bible in some sense. I mentioned evolution, so let's dive in. Evolution versus creation. Uh, generally speaking, there's many Christians that think they are totally incompatible. Uh, creation and evolution, uh, everything they opposed each other on at every level. And there's others that say, actually, no, creation and evolution can kind of come together. So let's speak to that a little bit. First of all, evolution is uh, believes in this perspective is that matter is self-existent. And eternal matter is, you know, things are, you know, we, what we are made of. This is self-existent and eternal. They believe that complex life forms have evolved from simple life forms, and they also believe in what's called the survival of the fittest, the uh, the, the 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 ones that have the strongest geno genetic code or genetic, you know, build or whatever is going to survive longer than others. Uh, and then, of course, and again, we're summarizing here. This is not everything. Uh, interspecies adaptation. So there can be actually pretty significant adaptations within an interspecies. So they adapt to their atmosphere in order to be able to survive. And then, of course, the big one is the new species adaptation, if you will, which would be macro elevation. Ev elevation. Really high elevation. Macro evolution, which has to do with going from one species to another, which, of course, scripturally, we, you know, generally, we're going to reject that all out. However, let's look at creation side and see where actually, you know, are they totally opposed or could there be some connection? First of all, God is self existent according to scripture, according to Genesis, and eternal, and he created everything. So it's not matter that's self-existent and eternal, but in creation, God is the one who is self-existent, and he created matter even. Uh, uh, in creation, we see that all species are specifically and purpose purposefully created by God. So there's no species that exists that didn't exist when God created, right? God created specifically each species purposefully. So, uh, but evolution is not fully, and it, it doesn't seem to be fully contradictory to Genesis. Again, depending on your interpretation of day, there could be some, what we would call microevolution, the adaptation of species, not from one species to another, but adaptation within species, uh, and the growth of uh, kind of how things went in the Genesis account. It could be that microevolution and survival of the fittest seems to fit into uh, God's creation, creation account, potentially. Uh, not macro, right? I already mentioned that, right? We, we do not, uh, in creation, it doesn't allow for us to believe that humans came from monkeys, right? That's just, that's, that's a stretch that uh, it doesn't seem that creation has. Again, God purposefully and specifically created each species, according to our understanding. So, uh, and again, no, so no, no clear uh, necessarily answers there, maybe a little bit. But again, what is the big question? The big question, I think, in this, in this scenario is, you know, is God, can God use natural processes to do his will? Can God use natural, the natural way that he created to do his will? I think it's a question that we need to examine, and I think that's part of what the creation and Genesis story is telling us, is that, you know, how God created, does he use that? Can he use that? Is that possible? Is God, does God just always work uh, outside of nature, or does God use nature as well? 
those are the questions that I think we need to be asking and not get hung up too much on evolution and creation. All right, so moving on. Next one, uh, genealogies. So uh, this one is uh, actually pretty interesting. Uh, the Francis Schaeffer book that I mentioned uh, is a, actually he does a lot with this and is really good. So genealogies, is it chronological or is it lineage? Now, if the, the, the reason, well, young earthers say that they take the chronologies in Genesis very literally, and that's how they come up with their 6,000-year date. So it's like every, if you go through all of, the, all of the genealogies in Genesis and you add up, you know, when, you know, so-and-so had this, you know, kid and then this person had this kid, you know, and so you got all of these names, right, and so you lay them all out and you put them on a table, you write out their years and how they're along, that's where we get the 6,000 years. Um, and so the question is, is, is that what genealogies are about, right? Is that what they're trying to communicate? And the issue, the concern is this, is that there actually is there's evidence of holes in chronologies throughout the Old Testament. So it's like, uh, I got a couple examples here. For, uh, we won't have time to go in and look at each of these, but I'll just kind of talk about them. And if you'd like to dive into more, you can. First uh, Chronicles 6, 3 to 14, and Ezra 7, 1 to 6, uh, talk about the same lineage and yet Ezra, when he's giving his lineage, and he's, you know, a smart guy, he was a, a guy who uh, was a scholar, wrote these things down, he skips several names in his genealogy. And so, but, but there's no, you know, like, why? Why did we skip several names in there? And so we have several names that are skipped. But here's, here's the one that's the big one, I think, in my mind. First Chronicles 3, 11 to 12 talks about, um, uh, specifically, the person we're looking at is uh, Azariah, who is also named Uzziah. So 1 Chronicles 3, Matthew 1. So Matthew 1 is talking about the genealogy of Jesus, okay? And, and so they're looking at the same thing, but this guy named Uzziah, in Matthew 1, 8, he's named Uzziah. In Chronicles, his name is Az Azariah. In Matthew, Uzziah's dad grandpa and great-grandpa are missing from the genealogy but chronicles has all of those names and so what is going on with these genealogies why are there gaps in it and yet we again this is a big one in matthew because we're talking about the line of jesus right so what is happening and so i, I think what again francis schaefer brings this out talking about how the concern with these, these genealogies is not with chronology. It's with the flow of history. They are concerned with helping us to know where did we come from, right? But how did that get, how did we get there? They're not concerned with all of the names within that list. They're not making sure that they're going to give every single person so that they all get their credit, right? No, it's, they pick out oftentimes the ones that are kind of the big ones and the important ones that they want to emphasize. And so they do this all the time throughout. We see this in the Old Testament, just the genealogies are different. And so uh, the we recognize that the writers of the, of the Old Testament are more concerned with tracking lineage than with the chronology of that lineage. They're concerned with the flow of history. Uh, and they would, again, just kind of, it seems arbitrarily at times, pick and choose key names to highlight in the story. Understand this, and kind of go back down to Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is no way 
for us to track the chronology of that period of time. We have no idea how long those 11 chapters cover. Time. It, it has genealogies in it. It has from Abraham, you know, and then, you know, from him on uh, all the way up to, to Noah, and then from Noah all the way up to Abraham. But there's gaps in those genealogies. We do not know how long that period of time took. Could have been thousands of years, probably was thousands of years. And so we need to keep that in mind. But again, the bigger question is not, oh my gosh, there's gaps in the genealogies. What's going on? How do we deal with this? Oh my gosh, my faith is crushed. No, what is our ancestry? This is, what, this is the big question that the Bible is trying to answer. Again, I mentioned earlier, right? We have the, the lineage, the genealogy of Cain. And then we have the lineage of Seth. What, the, what scriptures, especially testament is trying to communicate to us including genesis that jesus is in the line of adam and noah and abraham this that's the point is that god was working through this line of seth if you will throughout history and 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 that is the concern so all right so that's a big question there all right i know are you just totally bored i'm sorry some of you that's okay next week it'll be better um uh, here's a big one, uh, Sons of God and the Nephilim. Uh, oh my gosh, this is just crazy. So Matt, uh, Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 4. You know, partly, part of the way, reason I'm doing this right now is because when I get there, I don't want to have to deal with this again, right? Um, <laughs> I just, you know, some of this stuff is just like, I, I don't know, and I don't want to have to deal with it, you know, over and over again. So anyway, so I'm just doing it all in one message just to get out of the way, and so, oh well. So Nephilim and sons of God, what is going on here? Uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. It's also a couple of references later to the Nephilim. So basically there's two kind of main perspectives on this. Uh, But there's so little information here that it's really just super unknown. Uh, But view one is that the sons of God are actually fallen angels. And that they were having sexual relations with human women and that their offspring were these Nephilim who were giants of some sort. Um, and so that's, that's view one. View two, and there's, and there's people that, there's books, right? Series, uh, books on, on that perspective, uh, if you would like to read um, uh, more about that. And then view two is that the sons of God are the male descendants of the holy line of Seth, Uh, And they are intermarrying with women of the line of Cain. And again, their offspring are these Nephilim who are giants. So uh, I don't know. This is a huge mystery. There's no way to know the answer. uh, So I'm sorry. But if you have a creative mind and you'd like to write some really cool books, you know, about this period of time, you could do it and it would be fun. Uh, anyway, so uh, the big question again is, what has God revealed, right? What, is, what truth has he revealed? I think, I think that's, you know, sometimes we get stuck on what God hasn't revealed. <laughs> We're like, God, well, what about this? God, you didn't answer this question. You didn't answer this question, right? And, and so we can kind of badger God with all the stuff that we don't know. Instead of recognizing, what, what, did, what, did, he, what did he reveal? What do, we do, what do we know? Let's focus on those things. All right, next, uh, the last big one that we'll kind of hit is uh, the flood. So, 
Uh, with the flood, and you, uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but there is some discussion and conversation between, and, and yeah, division, between church, and for church, between Christians on whether or not the flood was a global event or just a local event, all right? So uh, traditionally, it's been seen as a global event, so God flooded the whole earth, right? The entire planet was flooded and that, you know, all, uh, all life was destroyed and except for who were on the ark, right? And so you had Noah and his uh, sons and, his, and their wives and his wife, you know, right? And they were the only ones who survived. They took all the animals on the boat. Remember, that's a great story, right? And uh, God brought all the animals two by two, right? And they put them in, you know, and we won't talk about the smell in that boat with all those animals. We won't talk about how that happened. But anyway, so there's some, there's some, there's some struggle, maybe some, some questions that that story certainly leaves. Again, as human beings, we have this mind that we love to extrapolate things and to figure it out. And so we begin to ask questions like, you know, where'd all the water go? I mean, uh, if there was that much water on the earth or to cover all of the land as well, where did it, where did it all go afterwards, right? Or, or again, even just a question, how did, I mean, if animals are all across the world and, and, and Noah is just in this one location, you know, I mean, how did all the animals animals get there i mean how they, they crossed oceans i mean what's what's going on right so there's some questions there uh so another theory has arised that that it actually was just a local flood a localized flood of that particular area where uh noah and would be assumed all humanity at the time was living because you know it seems like you know all humanity was wiped off the face of the earth, right? And God started over with Noah. So it's a localized flood instead of, you know, and there's some extrapolate, uh, extravagant uh, stories about how this happened in this, you know, ice dam that happened to be there and then it finally kind of gave way and so there's this big, you know, deluge of water and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but there is some concerns with this uh, perspective as well and mainly it's the holistic language that we see in this story where, you know, all was destroyed right and all the you know there's a lot of all in the whole earth and this kind of thing and so it just seems like you can't really know which one is true but i will say that i think either one could have been what actually happened i i think there's room for both of those perspectives not one person holding one of both of those but you you can choose one or the other and you can be all right i i don't think there's necessarily an issue the key concern as it seems to me and other scholars, is again, it goes back to one word, right? You know, creation goes back to one word, day. How do you interpret the word day? What does that mean to you? What does it mean? What did God mean when he wrote that? What did Moses mean when he wrote day? Well, here, the, 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 the concern is the word earth. Does earth mean planet? Or does earth just mean ground? And so that's kind of where uh, scholars have kind of diverged a little bit and said, okay, it seems like, you know, in the Hebrew and kind of breaking down this word, it actually means ground. And so that's where you get this localized perspective instead of a global perspective. But maybe it does mean planet. Maybe it does mean, earth, you know, globe, right? And so anyway, so, but it comes down to that. And if, however you decide whatever that word means and how that, you know, is understood, then you will kind of get your, either your global flood perspective or your local flood perspective. Again, sorry, I'm not giving you any clear yes or no answers on this. Just kind of a lot of, huh? Um, but... The big question, if you will, is why did God flood the earth? Why did the flood come? This story is not about whether it was a global flood 
or a local flood. That's not the concern of the story. The concern of the story is the reason for the flood and the promise that comes after the flood, right? And so we, again, we cannot allow ourselves to get hung up on some of these details too much, right? It's, again, it's fun. It's fine. I don't mind having those conversations, but we need to be careful not to allow that to be the main point. Again, why did, why do we have Genesis? Why did Moses write Genesis? Why did God give us Genesis? To reveal himself and to reveal who he is and who we are. Right? So keeping that at the forefront of our mind, answering these existential questions. And then when it comes to the details that are a little bit foggy, we can say, eh, maybe it's that, maybe it's that. But it doesn't change the fact of why this flood happened and you know, what God did in and through it. All right? All right. So in conclusion, I'm um, just going to kind of uh, just give maybe something that we can take home from this message other than a lot of, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> And, and that is uh, just, you know, the fact that, you know, we are, we are logical human beings. God has created us with a mind that is capable of deep contemplation. What a gift that is. But also with that, we have a pride that demands that we know. And if we're not careful, we will use this amazing mind that God's given us and we will try to figure it all out. And we will extrapolate things out so that every single thing, every single question we have is answered. And this happens all of the time in the book of Genesis. We have so much division that comes from this or so much faith that is lost from this because we are zeroing in and trying to extrapolate all of these stories out to try to understand everything that's going on to answer all the questions that we ever would have of the text so that we can figure out what the Nephilim are and the sons of God because we've got to know what that is because that changes everything, right? And so we, we have these minds that just continue to go because we want to know. But we as Christians must recognize and learn to accept the mystery of God. Accept the unknowns. Accept the fact that we aren't going to understand everything. And that's okay. We must choose humility. We must resist the temptation to figure it all out. We must use wisdom to know our limits. And know when too far is too far. Anytime we begin to extrapolate from Scripture, which means, extrapolation means we are taking a verse of Scripture, a truth of Scripture, and then beginning to add what that means and laying it out further and further and giving more and more answers to more and more of our questions. Anytime we begin to extrapolate, we are getting further away from what God has revealed what his truth is. And with every step of extrapolation, it becomes less and less reliable, less and less true. The question is, do we recognize it? Too many of us just extrapolate, 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 with never thinking the fact that, wait a second, I'm getting a long ways away from this one verse that I'm building all this extrapolation on. All right, now we're gonna go into communion. Understand this as we do. Mystery is the point of worship in our relationship with God, not doubt. 
So often we can come to God or after we are in the kingdom of God, we allow our questions and the mystery of God, the unknowns, to actually foster doubt in our mind. If I can't know this, then that means I don't really know who God is. (laughs) No, no, no. The mystery of God fosters worship. Because if we could understand everything about God, then he would no longer be worthy of worship. The fact that he's mysterious means and proves that he's infinite and we are just finite beings. I do not want to worship someone that I can totally figure out. I only want to worship the one I can't figure out because he's so much beyond me, so far removed. I just, I don't get it. I can get some of it, but I can't get all of it. God reveals what we need to know and leaves a lot of mystery, which is great. It's good news for worship. One of the great mysteries, of course, is highlighted in communion, and that's the mystery of grace. (laughs) The mystery of grace. We don't understand how God could love us this much. The lives of rebellion that we've lived against him and continue to do so. He knew. I mean, he came and he died while we were still sinning. But he still did it. He loved us that much. And and then he gave us this salvation by grace. He didn't say, okay, I died for you. Now you got to do all this stuff so that you can earn my salvation. No, no, no. I died for you. Just follow me and I'll give it all to you. Amazing. Doesn't make sense. For us as human beings to even act in that kind of way of grace, we, we, it's so hard for us. Very few, if ever, I think, have ever really done it. And yet, this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I love the, the foundational passages. Sometimes, you know, we, uh, as, we, as we grow as a Christian, as we get older and more mature, uh, we can maybe take in a mindset sometime of, you know, oh, you know, those, those basic gospel passages that I memorized when I was first becoming, you know, Christian or whatever. Uh, those, you know, those aren't that big a deal anymore. Those aren't really that profound. But, man, they're not. <laughs> Especially Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. My gosh, what a great passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And it goes on, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, as you take the wafer again, it symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. That again, in order to offer us this amazing grace, He willingly went and gave his life, allowed his body to be broken on the cross for us. As we partake of this in a moment, may we do so with a mindset again of just respect and honor and just pure worship for this great mystery that God has revealed to us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you are a God of great mystery and so worthy of worship as a result. We thank you for your son who willingly came and allowed his body to be broken for us. Lord, allow us 
just to, to profess one more time our awe, our thanksgiving, our gratitude for what he did for us. Thank you, Lord, for making the way for our relationship with you to be reconciled. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take it together. Heavenly Father, we also thank you for the poured out blood of Jesus. Again, we uh, so often look at this, but it's a good reminder again, Lord, to recognize that it's this blood that was poured out that washes over us and cleanses, cleanses us. Lord, this is uh, the, the purity that comes not because of our actions, again, but because of grace. Lord, when we choose to bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, his blood is washed over all of our sin and we are pure white as snow, considered just, justified, redeemed, righteous in your eyes. Lord, we thank you for that amazing gift. And Lord, once again, we come and as we partake, we partake with that thanksgiving and gratefulness in hoping that we now may, may live our life in honor of this amazing gift that was given. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take it together. All right, church, let's stand and we'll sing one more song and then I'll come back up with a closing passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Genesis, Lord, that does reveal to us who you are. Lord, uh, it's just, a, again, just amazing to me that uh, not only do we have the God who is amazing as you are, but that you have chosen to reveal yourself that you long to be in intimate, loving relationship with us. And so you knew we had to know who you were. And so you've spent the time, you've made the effort to reveal yourself to us. But Lord, you don't just do it in your word and in your scripture. Lord, you also reveal to us who you are in our own personal life. Lord, you speak these words to us again and again into our own hearts and our own minds. You reveal yourself to us in our own situations and circumstances. You prove yourself to be who you are as revealed in Scripture personally. And we thank you for that reality as well. That, Lord, we have hope in the future that even though we don't know all about you, we don't know everything about you, that there's tons of mystery in, in regards to you, that you are worthy of worship and that we know that you love us. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, church. We made it through. Good job. Have a great day. See you later.